Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. My guest in this episode of the Read All About It podcast is Hugh MacDonald, a man of many journalistic talents, forging his reputation over many years at the Herald newspaper. He was the chief sub-editor, youngest ever appointed by the newspaper at the time. He went on to become the literary editor, so he knows a thing or two about books. And then the deputy sports editor, and I can testify that he knows a thing or two about a number of sports. Now a much sought after freelance journalist and commentator, Hugh remains one of Scotland's best sport writers, one of its most generous in terms of offering help and advice, and definitely one of its best read. And no, he never paid me to say any of this. <laughs> Hugh, thanks for joining us. Right. All about Checks podcast. in the post, Paul. Checks <laughs> in the post. I, I can just tell people, oh, it's audio, I can, you're slightly blushing. <laughs> um, but it's, I suppose it's... As, as as that kind of that guys as, as literary editor mm. that, that I was wanting to mm. get you on, on yep. the podcast and you and I have, have spoken many times about books but absolutely in terms of your journalistic career I mean it's, it's been quite varied mm. I touched on it there you know chief sport chief sub editor such a key role mm. newspaper your literary editor you were you were mm. very much involved in sport do you have a particular love or is it just the love of writing more than anything else I kind of fell into it. It was, I, I fell into journalism because I suddenly decided I didn't want to do other things. I mean, obviously I wanted to be a footballer and, and I wasn't good enough. And then I was also at seminary to become a priest and I wasn't good enough. <laughs> and then I was... I we'll was, not ask anyone about that. that. <laughs> and then I was, um, I, I was accepted for medicine at Edinburgh University and I decided that very late that I didn't want to do that and just knew. And I said, right, okay, I'll... What do I do? And I was an advert in the Evening Times, become a young journalist, and I kind of dived towards that. But I always had a great interest. I had a, always had a great interest in newspapers. I read newspapers avidly, usually from the back to the front, to be frank, because I was always a, a football fan. I'd be a football fan for as long as I can. My first earliest memories would be playing yeah. football. And I was always into reading because I came from a, a reading household. I came from a really working-class household, that became a middle-class household, but it was a very working-class household, but both my mother and father would be avid readers, you know, they would second-hand books, pick up books, and very, very, um, very reverent about books. Very, re- There was a feeling of reverence about yeah. books in my house. And, you know, when you were the, the literary editor of the Herald, mm. is that... Because I think sometimes people from the outside would think that, especially if you love books, that's the dream job, because it, you're basically reading about books, people are sending you books all the time. Yeah, and It's a really funny job, it was, it was my dream job, um, and I, I had to give up for reasons that are too tedious to go into, but there's sort of illness involved, but the, to give you an idea of it, Paul, to be a reader, and I know you are, that every day you walked into your work and there's this pile of books to open, so every day was Christmas, so the first week I came into the job I said... I'm going to pick the best book of the week and I'll read it and I'll review it. And by the end of the first two days, I had ten to read. You know, because you were getting all the best books in. And it was just a colossally fascinating job. We both work in a, 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 a sports environment where access to the stars can be difficult. 
It's actually, by and large, it's the opposite with authors because uh, literary agents are trying to get publicity for their authors, yeah. so they, they're putting their authors up for interviews. So you are, you know, you're interviewing Martin Amis and, and Will Self and, uh, I mean, Bud Schulberg. I mean, you're just interviewing people that you're interested in, you've read and interested in reading uh, their stuff and, and knowing what. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a, a tremendous job. Yeah. Now, in terms of this podcast, and I've asked the people, uh, everybody, the same five mm. questions. Yeah. And the first book is your favourite book from childhood, and, and I know I'd previously wrote a book called Read All About mm. It. It was my year of reading more. Uh-huh, a great books. book as well. And you'd contributed it with, uh, I'd asked people, various people, mm. their favourite book. So it wasn't a surprise, and, and it's a, I mean, it's such a classic that you've chosen as your, your favourite book from childhood. Yeah, Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson, and I think for a variety of reasons. You know, in childhood, you get the you get the feeling that a book is a classic and has there's something about it that it's one of those books that you should read. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a child, there's maybe a little resistance to that because you might think, oh, this is going to be a bit difficult, or this is going to be a bit in that modern word challenging, or and as soon as I picked it up and started reading it, I mean, it's so banal to say, but it's such a great book that you could read it now and have read it since and you would get so much more out of it than mm. I did it and honestly I'd be six or seven when I read it and you get so much out of it it would stand up now of a thing of substance but the way it stood up there and the thing about it was that it, I knew already that reading was fun and I knew I loved reading and I knew reading was going to be part of my life but I didn't realise that reading so-called classics would be such fun. Yeah. That's quite a nice thing to find out very early on, isn't it? It's an incredible thing because what you'll find out in in later life is somebody will say to you, oh, that's like War and Peace, or you read War and Peace, and you say, have you read War and Peace? Because War and Peace is a really readable, enjoyable book. It's a fantastic book, but it's there's some kind of like pretension if you say, I was reading War and Peace in my holidays. You say, reading War and Peace, and it's a great novel, it's an important novel, and there's one that... For your later questions, it, it, it came pretty high up the list, but Treasure Island was so exciting, so dramatic, so, um, and, and that great thing where it takes you to another land, you know, you're maybe sitting reading it in those of six or seven, sitting reading it in Glasgow, and it's taking you to, you know, desert islands and uh, Caribbean, and th- you're just fantastic. It was interesting when you chose this, because uh, one of the podcast guests, Chris Dolan, who, of course, you know, a really good Scottish writer, and his first book from childhood it was Kidnapped uh-huh. and, and in choosing Kidnapped he said he, he tried he was about maybe 9 or 10 and when he tried reading Treasure Island he found that more difficult uh-huh. then went to, to Kidnapped absolutely loved that then went back to Treasure Island mm-hmm. and appreciated it uh-huh. all the more because he'd read Kidnapped for. but the greatness of the great writers um, uh, and, and certainly great in the best sense popular writers of you know of the 19th century 20th century certainly was to be accessible because these people these people weren't writing for literary merit you know um, Dickens was writing for example for money for money <laughs> he was writing instalments in books yeah. and, and Robert Louis Stevenson of course had this great artistic element to him but he knew he had to write it to be sold and to be read so these books weren't that terrible, were readable, you know, they, they, they were, um, and although now you see, it's like the great things, that simplicity about Kidnapped and, and, and Treasure Island, when it, it's like everything else, 
you really have to be that good to make it that simple. But also what I love about Treasure Island and Kidnapped, and you've already mentioned it, is you read it as an adult, and, mm-hmm. and if, I mean, I actually bought another copy of Kidnapped recently because mm-hmm. I'd given away my ah, so copy. And it's one of the books, I'm, I'm, it's on my, my list of books mm-hmm. to read again. And I know, even though I've read it uh-huh. a couple of times, I'm so looking forward to reading it again because mm-hmm. it'll just, as you say, you, you'll get something new from it. Uh, well, I'm going to read it again. I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm now in grand children land and uh, grace of God if, I, if I'm allowed I'm going to you know start I bought a really beautiful copy for uh, my granddaughter and I'm going to read it to her every week at right. night because she is uh, she's already kind of showing the, the McDonald kind of genes right. for being a reader you know? what age is she? she's three but right. she, she loves books and so you see that, that accessibility that is just and even if you don't understand it at three and four, I think if you're just telling a story at three and four, there's something, something wonderful about sharing a book at a very early age, even though you're not understanding it. It's a story, and you're hearing some elements of the story which you can grasp. But the great thing as well is you're hearing things like stories are important, books are important, and your granda wants to spend time with you. These are important things to know in your life that people want to give you time, that you're worth people's time, that reading, people think that reading might be important to you. Like if it isn't, that's fair enough. If she ends up, she isn't, that's fine. But given that opportunity, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's been the great... It's what it, Reading, you know, has been such a wonderful thing in my life. And when you're reading the book, her, do you... You put on a few different voices oh, and, and make it dramatic. Well, I haven't started the Treasure Island because I think she's just slightly too young for that. But I buy her books all the time. Uh, I mean, and books, kids' books now are wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, beautifully illustrated and all that. And yeah, I do the whole. I do the whole. Um, uh, nominated for best supporting actor in a child's <laughs> book under the age of five. That would be a different another career for you. Audio books. <laughs> Quite. Uh, <laughs> we'll wait and see how so your granddaughter goes. It's all for that. In, in terms of the questions, I then I'm, I'm trying to lead people through that yeah. kind of literary journey of their life. So, stepping forward to what I would call maybe the, the formative years when you're starting mm-hmm. to really develop your own tastes. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of you've chosen a, a couple of, of, of different books. Yeah, I chose a Borstal Boy by Brendan Bean and Flashman by George Macdonald Fraser because they were really seminal books for me again. And I, I never stopped reading. I've never stopped reading in uh, 64 years in this planet and Borstal Boy was very important to me because there's a, I was about 13 or 14 when I said there's a lot of books lying about my house and you could get access to anyone my dad and my mum wouldn't bother about what you read you know there wasn't like that book's too old for you that book's yeah. too young I mean I always remember Lord Liverpool's report on the Holocaust was in our house and I was reading that as a kid you know most people now would say oh, you can't, that's too, you're too young for that but there was this lacy fair attitude in my house where if you wanted to read something, you read it. So Borstal Boy was a kind of naughty book. It had been, it'd been banned for obvious reasons. For people who don't know what it's about, it's Brendan Bean's early memoir of being arrested uh, when he's a member of the IRA. Uh, and he was a young boy and he, he'd been arrested in, in, in England in a, a bomb plot, an absolutely kind of absurd and uh, feckless and incompetent bomb plot and, and, and he got caught and he was put in remand in prison and he was uh, and he was sent to Borstal and it's written in Brendan Bean energy and uh, the language in it is very shall we say authentic in yeah. terms of 
uh, they had to actually change in certain editions, change the F word to a more palatable F word. But anyway, they had that. And the thing I loved about it was, E, it was that kind of forbidden fruit for me. I was young and I was reading this. The thing I always loved about it as well was the sheer energy and kind of that word brio of the writing. It was just like a sort of full force book that you just wanted to turn every page. Not because of any plot shifts or anything like that, because you were so interested in this guy and his predicament. You know, a young kid a long way from home. And, and, and I had some, some really, you know, marvellous moments in it because he was being so open about his, um, his fears, his insecurities, uh, the danger of being a... Imagine being a young IRA man in an English prison, the dangers to him and, and, uh, and how he had to make his way. And being so open about this, and you've got to remember, this would be literally half a century ago I'd be reading this, where if you were fearful and insecure as a young man, which I, I would be at 12 and 13 and 14, you couldn't really speak about that because there'd be something wrong with you, yeah, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So So tying in with Bean's fear and how he was getting through it. And little things like he used to get, uh, he used to order the news of the world every week, not because he uh, necessarily liked the news of the world, but had the most reading in it. And he would ration it so that he could, he was reading all week till the next news of the world came in. Because right. he was so fearful of having nothing to read. And I tied in completely with that, Paul. One of my great fears and phobias in life would be to have nothing to read. Is, is, you know, even talking about that, I got to stick my, uh, my tummy. I mean, did you read a lot of non-fiction at that time? I read, that, yeah, anything. But even at that time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anything at all. I would read whatever was lying about the house. My dad would throw, literally throw stuff at you saying, you should be reading that. You might like that. No, he never said you should be reading that. He was very good that way. He'd say, there's a book in that, you might like that, or... So you would read anything. I mean, you would read stuff as well. It was well outside your frame of reference. I mean, like Lord Love of Post Report and yeah. all like that. But you would read stuff that you didn't understand and all. But I never ever minded that, you know. And looking back, it was good because it just it broadened you, made you grow. So I would, yeah, I would do the lot. Yeah. It probably makes you a more open-minded reader as well. Aye, I, 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 and, and I think to, to go on, if you're talking about non-fiction, to go on to the Flashman stuff, that was part of the non-fiction because I always, at school, I, 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 when I was getting taught history, I always wondered why I didn't like history at school. Because somewhere inside me intuitively felt that I really should like it, because it was important. Mm -hmm. And any time I read about people in history, I really thought, oh, that's interesting, you know. And it was, of course, history was taught as a, as a series of events and dates. And Flashman, one of the great things about Flashman was Flashman's fantastic history, really great history books. Because they're very true to their time and place. Everything in Flashman, except Flashman himself, is 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 a kick in the bum of a hundred percent authentic. So if you know if Bismarck is coming into Flashman books, or if uh, a Lincoln is coming into a Flashman book, or you know Lord Cardigan or whoever, they're, they're based in historical fact, and you know not many historians could actually argue with what George Macdonald Fraser's saying about them. I loved that, and that really opened up my interest in history as well. And they were just so brilliantly well done. You can see the the, the Sharp series of books. Cause Absolutely. Because obviously there's, a, there's inspiration that he took for them. And mm. Is that Absolutely. kind of similar? In Absolutely. Absolutely, in terms of written. I think Flashman spoiled me for Sharp because yeah. I think I was more temperamentally suited to Flashman because 
I think at the heart of Flashman with George MacDonald Fraser was this immense ruse, this really flyman act, where if people have not read the Flashman books, they're, they're, they're purported to be the genuine memoirs of Harry Flashman from Tom Brown's school days. And a lot of people actually took it, because he really writes this very poor-faced introduction to them, saying, you know, these papers were found behind a mantelpiece and the, there's providence to where they'll be. And it's very, very funny, of course, as well. And again, it's very, very good on the human condition. And that Flashman uh, in the books has got a VC, becomes a baronet, becomes a, a sort of like uh, the, the great hero of England and the Empire. And he's an absolute coward and cad. And that was a useful lesson they learned at 13 or 14, that how people are perceived by uh, uh, the larger uh, majority of people is not necessarily the way they are. Because yeah. it's a real skill as a novelist, to, as, you, as you mentioned, to, to take either historical events or historical <coughs> characters and still be able to weave them into a novel make it believable. Absolutely. And then to straddle this, uh, as George MacDonald Fraser did, straddle this thing of real historical substance and, and validity with something so, you know, wacky, really. You know, he's made up and something so imaginative. And to keep the both of them together uh, for a whole series of books. Um, and interestingly, he ended up, he was a friend of my dad's, uh, George MacDonald Fraser. Right. Uh, because my dad, by that time, was working in the Herald. And George MacDonald Fraser was the deputy editor of the Herald. And we perhaps would never have had Flashman books if George MacDonald Fraser had been made editor of the Herald. He was overlooked as editor of the Herald and, and said, right, I'm away to write these books. So we had whoever, whoever we have to thank, thank for, for that. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so they were really important books for me. Listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, the journalist Hugh MacDonald. And we're on to, to question three, Hugh, and that's a, a book you would recommend to anyone. And given you know your literary background, literary editor, I'm, I was really intrigued to see what you would choose for this one. There's so many books you would recommend, isn't it? And, and one of the great things about books is reading a book and putting it down and going, I must give this to X, or why I love this. Because that's a great thing about it, isn't it? Sharing a book. Have you read this? Yeah, I asked one of my other guests about mm. that because I often wonder, and I, I do it occasionally with books that I, I've invested mm. so much in, mm. if I give it to someone and I, you say, you'll really love this, and then if they don't, I'm thinking, am I judging them slightly by saying, really? Uh, Why don't you love it? Because yeah, it, it's a dicey thing because you're giving a bit of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're giving a bit of yourself. And uh, and sometimes guys will, uh, you know, we've got mutual friends uh, who will share books with us, and, and sometimes it doesn't chime. But mostly, uh, as years go on, you, you, mm-hmm. you can... But the reason I've chosen Les, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo is for one reason only, because you could boil down, I could give you a hundred choices. And I, I, I wrote, read a book this year, for example, Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry, which I would I think is just a work of... Genius, almost of you know, it's almost of poetry. This book, so I would recommend that, and re- uh, recommend so many other things. But Les Miserables, for this one reason, it has in it the best evaluation of goodness that I've ever read. And I think we're imperfect beings, where we know maybe we know too much 
how capable we are of bad things and maybe we know too much at times and, and beat ourselves up about our bad things. But we're also capable of being good and we're also capable and being good is being open and helpful to someone else, is giving that goodness away. And in Les Miserables, there's, there's a chapter, there's quite a famous chapter about the bishop and about um, the escaped convict. And it's the best example of goodness I've ever read. And, and for those that have not read it, the, the escaped convict is he's on his uppers, so he steals. The, 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 the bishop is very, very good to him and gives him his dinner and, and knows he's an escaped convict without doing that and he makes no judgement in that but gives him his dinner but he puts out the best stuff for his dinner you know uh, in the great Christian tradition of anybody that's a guest in your house you should treat as Jesus Christ you know and what, what religion you are I just think that's such a wonderful ethos isn't it to treat everybody uh, like that and he, and he puts out the best colour and all includes his silver uh, candlesticks and the escaped convict uh, needs money and he, he racks himself and he does something bad he steals two candlesticks but he's found down the road by the cops with the two candlesticks so they take him back to the bishop and then the bishop he says to the bishop this is a guy you were feeding him like he's knocked your two candlesticks and he says no 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 he's forgotten the other two candlesticks and gives them Right. The other two candles sends him on his way, and I thought, goodness gracious, isn't that isn't that goodness? Somebody's stolen for you, but he's not stolen enough. Here's more. Here's more. The guy could have dobbed him in, and the, and the guy's back in the the galley sleeves. But with that one move, not only has he shown his own goodness and given, but he's changed the guy's life, and he's maybe given the guy a lesson, you know. And I always remember reading that for the first time, and and and, and I read uh, it's a huge book, it's like four books, but I read it twice. I read it once just to to read it, and I read it another time because there's a new edition out, and Harold wanted the new edition reviewed, and I remember the first time I read it, I, that chapter, I just just turned the book over. That's goodness. That's you know, you've got to give it away. You've got to make no judgments. You've got to you've got to look at other people and and say, how can I help people? What would be the best thing to do to help this person? It was really, really very powerful. And the second time I read it, which would be 20, 30 years later, I was actually looking forward to coming to the chapter. When the chapter came and reading it, I read it in a sort of meditative state. It was just beautiful. It was very emotional. It was almost like bringing tears at the end, that somebody could be so good, that that goodness was within us all. It was... It's not like you, you know, like watching the footballer guy hitting the ball in the net for thirty yards, and he says, that's very good, but I couldn't do it. This um, propensity for goodness was within us all, and the capability was within was within us all as well. Because I was wondering, you know, you you touched on in the start that you had at one point you'd been at seminary. Mm. I mentioned in the introduction mm. that you, and I know it was kind of half joking mm. and just you know bigging you up, but in terms mm. of your kind of generosity of you know people would testify of you know in terms of advice and help and stuff and. Is that kind of faith and that idea of, you know, that very core of being good to other people, love your neighbours, is that obviously really important to you? Yeah, and, and I would say it would be, and I'm obviously very fallible in it and very, but it would be something that, I would, that would transcend kind of religion for me. Um, it would be something that we're, we're all in this together, you know, and, and, and because I've had times in my life as well where I've needed really strong help from other people, you know, if I, 
addiction issues and things like that in my in my life that mercifully have receded from for for thirty years, and I'm quite open about talking about. It. I've no shame about that, you know, because it was it was part of my life. And getting that, what do you the word? Um, unreserved help, unmeasured help, yeah, non-judgmental, un- non-judgmental. Yeah. Just what you are. Well, it's. And I've always been, I was all, always been very moved by people's capacity to um, just engage with you and say, well, and, and, and then that non-judgmental thing's great because people's capacity at a very high level to say, I can't solve this for you, but I can be there for you. Yeah. Or <clears throat> Which is sometimes what you need. Mo- yeah. it's, it's precisely what you need. So I've always, yeah, it's been at the, the core uh, of me and then, but that whole reading, uh, whether it be non-fiction or fiction, I think strangely, not maybe for you and I who are big readers, but that fiction is more educational than non-fiction in many ways. Yeah. It can be, because you get into characters' lives and you see how they deal with things and how their lives are being dealt with as well. So I think reading plays into that, you know, that you're part of a wider community, you're a bit wider, a bigger whole, and you're part of things that you don't understand. You don't, you, there's problems that people will have in my circle that I don't understand, but I don't need to understand them to be able to help or to be able to be there. Because I thought as, as well, which m- what must have been good for you when you, you reread that passage mm. in Les Miserables, you know, given the fact that it's such a profound effect mm. on you the first time, it's good that it had the same effect the second time or even more because there'd have been nothing more disappointing if you'd reread it years later. Mm. And sometimes the experiences of life change your perspective and things if uh-huh. it hadn't impacted you. Well, that's a great thing about, you know, I think about great fiction. Uh, and and about great fiction is, 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 is uh, our great reading, our great literature. There's enduring truths in great literature. I mean, if you read Vasily Grossman and Life and Fate about Stalingrad, you don't need to be a Russian guy in Stalingrad under the communist system to understand it fully. You know, you can you, you can understand the characters, you understand their dilemmas. You don't have to be starving to, to empathise or sympathise with, with the starving. And great literature takes you into the heart and substance of, I mean, it's that terrible word, the human condition, but that's what it is. Mm. I mean, that's what that's why, you know, I mean, people can criticise Dickens for being over-sentimental. I don't, but people can. But what Dickens is talking about is, you know, the vile criminality of poverty uh, is about, you know, the obsequious and dangerous um, notions of people who want to be our betters. We're in the middle of a general election campaign and, and, and we'll always be in the middle of a general election campaign in Britain. But these things still stand true today. Yeah. Which is sad in a way. It's, it's you know. horrible in a way. That kind of that relevance to the to to, to what we should do as, as human beings is is I think is kind of the core. And you don't have to take it on, or you, you but it's there. We speak about great literature, but we're on to the next question, and it's maybe not so great literature. And this is the the book, and you've obviously been paid at times to, to read. Oh, absolutely but, paid to read. But uh, what's a book that uh, you couldn't be paid to read again? And this is it does make me laugh. This it, there's Will Carling's autobiography, and and it, it stands as a whole genre actually, a genre that I had to do all the time is, is review sports books, and sports books at that time were just awful. I mean, it was just like. Um, there was no insight into them and uh, there was no depth to them and they were just, it was painting by numbers and his one was 
was one of the, the great kind of exemplars of that. And it was really unfortunate because now the, the, the culture's changed. And, and sports books now, people are coming out and talking about their mental health issues or whatever, you know, they're coming out and, and you know, there's depth to what they're in. You've written them, I mean, but there's depth to, to, to it now. You can read a sports book and say, no, it's good. And, and why it annoyed me was that there was this great tradition in, in America of sports writing being really, really important. The, um, and there's a great tradition in Britain uh, where they talked about it as you work in the, and I'm a sports writer of course and you're working in the, the toy department whereas in America of course it was very very yeah. important and, and, and what they did as well in America all the best writers were in sport so that if they were having the Lindbergh trial say or Dutch Schultz was having uh, his trial the sports nests were cleared because it was Ring Lardner and uh, you know, and others, you know, Red Smith, they would all go to the trials because they were the best writers, you know, so they'd send the best writers to the to do the colour, Damon Runyon and all these guys. Uh, so I always thought, oh, that's a real chance miss because sports, American sports literature was so good and, 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 and British sports literature was so poor. And that's an exemplar of it. Because it's interesting, one of the, the other guests in this series of the podcast is a mutual friend of ours, mm. Martin Gregg, who yeah. co-founded Backpage Press, yep. who very much crystallised what you were thinking and that was their whole philosophy that they, they'd read a lot of American sports mm. literature and they've strived very successfully through a whole number of books that have taken you know, sports writing and, and sports books to a, a new level and I know you've been very much involved with, mm. with them behind the scenes with some really great books. Yeah, but the, the, see their point of departure for all their books is, uh, is not we'll publish this book because it'll make us money. They always say why should we publish this book? You go, what? You mean, why should you publish it? You know, well, what's it going to say? And see, when we do publish it, and I have been involved uh, when they are publishing it and they're editing it, it's given, you know, people can, can come out and say, well, I don't like that and I didn't like this, but it's given the greatest journalistic care and, and, and attention. It's really treated as a work yeah. of importance. You see that when you read the finish. Exactly, and everything is done to a purpose. And... and and that would be that would be my philosophy with them as well. Because I used to say, like, I mean, like sport in Britain. When I was chief sub in the Herald, and when would that be? Late seventies, early eighties. Sport would be treated like the sports editor would come in and be dismissed within five seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, just read out the, the sports section. Oh yeah, well, we'll now talk about the important things. And I used to kind of me a wee bit because I was really interested in sport. But sport was looked about a bit as dumbbell, and I'm going, no, it's really such an important part of my life and, and other people's life, and they're not dummies. If you look at, see, apart from American street fiction writing, eh, sorry, non-fiction writing about sport, all the great American writers have written about sport. The Rabbit series by Updike. Rabbit, Armstrong, Armstrong, is a basketball player. Philip Roth wrote a novel you know, kind of, uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek novel called The Great American yeah, Novel. Yeah. It's about a baseball team. I mean, I always think Don DeLillo's... DeLillo, Underworld. That's possibly one of the, the best starts to a novel I've ever read, and it's all about the short haired around the world, the baseball... By a guy who was born to stop the road. Yeah. Bobby Thompson. That's right, yeah. Bernard Malamud, The Natural. If you go through all the great American writers, but sport is part... Of the life that they're living in, you know. Whereas if you could imagine, in, in the, when David Story, for example, wrote this sport and life, I would just what this 
guy from is writing a book about rugby league and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a serious novel. It was really revolutionary. Well, I actually think the best for me the best football novel mm. and, and to me it's and, and I think I'm so proud that it's a Scottish I think Robin Jenkins The Thistle and the Grail absolute. is an absolute classic uh, and it is in the Scottish Junior Cup but it's so it shows you how football is so inbred in us and is so part of our culture and, and to deny it and there was a denial of it in the time when I'm talking about the late 70s early 80s and the Herald for instance the Herald would be looked upon as um, sort of upper middle class Grammar school, Hutchie boys, all been to university. Of course, my nose was out of joint in a way because I wasn't one of them. You know, I was like a seminary boy, just come basically uh, from there into newspapers, um, no formal education at all, and football daft. I mean, like, and I've no shame. I mean, I'm still obsessed with football, Paul. I, I, I watch, I travel all over the world to watch it with my son. I spend my life and my kids bringing them up watching football till they either didn't like it or they became obsessed with like me and if they didn't like it like my daughter she wandered away fine but it was such an important part of my life yeah so important parts of life you've got to read about them you've got to make them valid otherwise your culture becomes devalued by other people and off the top of my head the back page press and I have to say as well Martin's not paid me to to <laughs> The, the the Pirlo autobiography is absolutely stunning and also in, from a Celtic point of view Stephen Sullivan's biography of Sean Fallon is as good a Celtic book as, as I've I think so I think um, I, I had the privilege to be involved in that project no more than that and it's a work of great substance if there's one unfortunate thing about the, the, the Sean Fallon book it's, it, it should reach a wider audience because what we're talking about if anybody's listened to this and they're interested in sport in any kind what we're talking about here again is that word of a man of substance. How this man um, makes his life, yeah. uh, and how what is important to this man's life, and how he influences the lives of a whole generation of Scots and Scots Irish, uh, which he did. And it's a real, it's it's a, almost the last will and testament of Sean as well. Yeah, that's an extraordinary book. And Pirlo is a genius book because the guy who um, he translated this guy called Mark Palmer, a Scots guy, a journalist at the Sunday Times. And his translation of it is brilliant because you think you're reading it in Italian because it's kind of clunky, you know, that sort yeah, of yeah. has that kind of idiosyncratic Italian feel to it. So instead of smoothing this and making it a very English spoken book, he's made it a very Italian book, which is precisely what it needed. Pirlo's a fantastic book. Well, as I say, you can check them out. We're on to the fifth and final question. It's the last book you read or are currently reading, and it was interesting when you, when you got in touch with me mm. beforehand. You said that you've always got three books on the go: one mm. fiction, one non-fiction, and one spiritual book. Yeah, I, and I, I lose the term spiritual sort of very loosely. It's just like, but I always liked uh, a, a book in the best sense of what sort of. I think all books for me imbue me with the spirit and move my spirits. But something over the years, I, I've been very keen to sort of read books of different religion, different religious practices, different spiritual practices, whether they not be religious at all. And a guy I'm interested, there's a couple of guys I'm really interested in now. One's Richard Rohr, who's a, a Roman Catholic priest and, and does a, uh, 
does a daily meditation if anybody's interested, which you can sign up for nothing. And it's it's completely non-Catholic. It's about sort of meditations. It comes from a Christian tradition, but he's, he's very in. So I'm reading one of his books at the moment. Uh, I usually read that last thing at night, and sometimes baffles me. I like a narrative flow, Paul. Yeah. And that's why a spiritual book at night is good for me because it settles me. I've got to read it properly. I've always got to be aware of myself when I'm reading. Slow down, slow down. Don't the page doesn't have to be turned. Mm-hmm. You can actually read what's on the page. Almost, uh, that's quite a conscious thing. We in terms of the the fiction book, it's Charles Wolford. Charles Wolford omnibus. Charles Wolford's um, a strange guy. He's uh, kind of he's known as a kind of pulp fiction crime writer. Uh, he's obviously, I think, more than that. He was a very um, in some life, he, one of these kind of itinerant uh, Americans ended up being a tank commander in the Second World War and winning the Croix de Guerre and things like that and then coming back and doing jobs like being a car salesman, a kind of feckless drifter, but writing. And his novels are very sort of powerfully masculine and, and, and um, macho, but underneath that is the, the feeling that you get as you read them is that being powerfully masculine and, and the macho is a very dangerous thing to be and not a very fulfilling thing to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Elmer Leonard, who's one of my great heroes, he put me on to him by, by writing one day that you know that he said, you know, people should read Charles Wolford. So you know that thing is yeah, this you, is a great we talked about book recommendations. That's this is good. Yeah. And and so I'm, I'm I'm reading the second omnibus of his at the moment, uh and really enjoying it. What was my non-fiction? The non-fiction one is the latest in the Thatcher. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. This is um, uh, like most. I'm I worked as a chief sub and night editor during the Thatcher era in a paper that was broadly supportive. I think of her, but definitely amongst a lot of colleagues who were broadly supportive of her in a culture that was completely and utterly um, hateful over and 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 in uh, uh, a culture that was being destroyed by her and consciously destroyed by her and I read Charles Moore who's written this trilogy it's very much a Thatcher right very much in that Westminster bubble and it's brilliant the trilogy because if you read it you just see how inconsequential and irrelevant our lives are to this Westminster powerhouse and what's going on there. And you can throw the the book against a wall in in, in contempt and hatred of that. Or you can read the 3,000 pages and say, isn't this incredible how the lack of insight into what is happening in the wider country? It's beautifully written, by the way, and meticulously researched. And very sympathetic to Thatcher, which would be the antithesis of me, the last part. But very interesting in, in the motivations behind things and, and just the sheer lack of, sheer lack of knowledge of what, what goes on in people's lives and how people are, are living their lives. And it, it resonates, of course, to this day where, where you can literally, you can well up with tears when you... The whole the one word or the two words, whatever way you wanted to name it, food banks. Food banks in this country. Food banks. Well, it was actually during the election campaign in December. There was a photo opportunity, and it was a conservative couple of conservatives, and it was at a food bank. And, and the slogan alongside it was, "Every town should have one," uh. which is 
you know, uh, we talked about Dickens, we're talking about 2019, 2020, and that, that's a phrase that people would use. So what the, the Thatcher thing has done for me is to show how these people, some of them very intelligent, all of them very driven, this complete and utter lack of empathy or sympathy for how other people are reading their lives and... You see it all the time, you know. You know, you, you hear, you know, conservatives saying, you know, people who uh, uh, use food banks, they're not starving; they've just got a cash flow problem. And you go, "Oh my God!" And and I find it very, very interesting the Thatcher thing to, to to read about it and read about what she was doing and what she was trying to do and how she was. And I've got to the end of the trilogy now. And in a very, very um, amazing way, when you come to the end of it, you realise this would be my take if I was reviewing the book, that, that she was a woman almost incapable of love. And uh, I think that's a terrible affliction. I really do. And I don't think she was a woman that was loved. And at the end, and I think that's a terrible place to be in life because surely... If you learn in about life and without getting the violin out, I think the whole thing about life is to love and be loved. Mm-hmm. If you had to put it down, mm-hmm. to, yeah, absolutely. That that's what sustains me. And to say, well, for example, towards the end of her life, she's suffering greatly with dementia. Her two children are not visiting her; they just don't visit, and no friends really come about and visit. She's just, I mean, the title of the, the book, the last chapter, uh, is, is is herself alone. And you say to yourself, I mean, it's that great thing about, what is it, you know, the great Bible thing, you know, what does it merit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And the, the soul is love and, 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 and be loved and, and be that and that. In many ways, because people see me reading it, you know, I was away in, in Poland the other week and I was reading it there. People in planes will see me reading it. And obviously they'll come to their conclusion as a Tory. Yeah. I'm completely, but I've always kind of, uh, I always like to be open-minded and, and 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 see what was in it, and it's a really desperately sad book. Desperately sad. A kind of final question to you, and, and just given you know your own career and your own love of books, have you if you never wanted to go into more you know writing novels or, or writing non-fiction books more, or do you enjoy the kind of more the journalistic side of things? I just don't enjoy writing. Is the is the is, right. is the thing? <laughs> I hate writing. Um, I always use the Dorothy Parker one, the Dorothy Parker one, where she says, I hate writing, I love having written. And that's the way I do it, I, I love having written. See, once I've finished something, but every day, and I write now, probably write most days, every time I write and the blank screen comes up, I get a real feeling of fear and insecurity and, oh, God, this is the one that's going to catch me out and this is, why did I do this? And I'm no use at it and all that, so... I mean, the only good thing about it is I always know deep down I'll get through it, but yeah. I don't like writing. Just stick, stick to the reading then. Stick to the reading. <laughs> listen, Hugh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know you and I have spoke many times about uh, books, but just to sit down and, and listen to some of your choices has uh, been fascinating. Good, good. I'm glad. I hope it makes some sense to the listener. No, I'm sure, I'm sure people listen to it will enjoy it, but thanks again. Well, my pleasure, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. 
But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.